Good morning, LAFC. All right, gird your loins, people. You're going to get a chance to shout at me today. I saw some people throw some hands up, but I need to guide that because it's not just whatever you want to throw out at me. Um, Prepare yourself. It's okay. It's okay to shout. A question is on the screen behind me. Four words with a question mark at the end. Where have you been? Have you ever heard this from somebody? To you. Where have you been? Have you ever said it to somebody? Two emotions I want you to consider today. The first one is joy. We're going to attach joy to this where have you been. I think it's the harder of the two, and that's why I want to start with it. Imagining you are joyful that the moment you are experiencing is so wonderful that you say those words. What does it sound like? A joyful where have you been? Is anyone bold enough to give it a go? Say it out loud. Uh, pretty good. There, there's a nice little, little rise at the end there. Someone, someone said, where have you been? It's pretty good. For myself, I had to think about what was unique or special or novel that I had somehow missed in my life. Two things came up. This is all honesty. I'm not making anything up with these two things. The first one is beetroot. Beets. You know, they stain your hands when you cook with them. Um... I had never tried beets until three and a half years ago. I love them. And just this week, to myself, there was no one else around me. I'm serious. I'm laughing at myself. I I actually said, God bless beets. (laughs) Like, what is that? Beets for dinner? Awesome. Where have you been? And three and a half years ago, it was when I moved to Pennsylvania that I realized that the beets are here. So, thank you, Dwight Schrute. Uh, Another one, another one is Taco Tuesday. Yeah, all right. If you don't know what Taco Tuesday is, you are missing out. The whole idea behind it is, and everyone has, does everyone have a bulletin? There's a place to take notes on the back. This is where you start. This is where you start. The whole idea behind Taco Tuesday is this. You eat tacos on Tuesday. I know. I know it's a gift every single week. So, Taco Tuesday, where have you been? Now, as a challenge to the people in the room who need to be writing or drawing or doing something as they listen, uh, try and draw a taco. I'm serious. It took, me, it took me more time than I actually thought as I was preparing this. I thought... I do love Taco Tuesday. Can I even draw a taco? (gasps) I can't. (laughs) Think about it. Think about it. It's more mental work than you think. Now, much easier to communicate with this question is what many of us will call anger. A spouse, a child, comes home a little too late without that call, without that text message. Or you find yourself in trouble and you had expected a friend or a family member to show up and be your superhero. But they didn't. How can you say the sentence on the screen above with anger? Anyone want to give that one a try? 
There's a, there's, there's a whole lot more response with that one. Where have you been? P- different people will emphasize different words. Last service, someone punctuated every single word. Where have you been? I felt it. <laughs> now, so much of what we think is anger, it's not actually anger. It's sadness. It's loss. It's grief. But for some reason, when we allow it to be called anger, we permit the intensity that is with it. For the record, just because it is intense doesn't mean it's anger. Intensity is allowed with loss. Intensity is allowed with grief. It's strong and it's deep and it shakes us to our core. Can you feel that? If someone has ever said it to you, it's because they're disappointed. Where have you been? I expected you to be here. If you ever said it, you know what that's like as well. That's the intensity, that's the feeling, that's what was happening when, with Jesus, he was confronted by two people that loved him and that saw him as their hope. Between the two of them, Mary and Martha were a team to be reckoned with. They were forceful. They were determined women of faith. They were also practical. They got things done. Their home was a smooth running operation. Visitors knew that if they came to Mary and Martha's home, they would be well fed, they would be heard, and their hearts would be warmed by the righteous attention. When their brother got sick, they managed fine for a time. There's a line, though, we all have. You can only manage so much vomit. You can only manage so many soiled clothes. You can only manage hearing the sick person say, I can't eat. Again? It's been a week. I can't can't drink. I can't put anything inside of me. You haven't had anything to drink for days. Everyone has a line. And as a caregiver, you reach your capacity. It takes an incredible amount of humility to ask for help. And Mary and Martha got to that point. They couldn't manage on their own. And so they asked. They sent a message to the one person they knew could make a difference. And the message was really simple. The one you love is sick. It was a moment of high context, though. Simple statement, high context. It was really saying, Jesus It's time to show up. Jesus, we need you here. Jesus, it's time to heal the one you love. Stop what you're doing and attend to us. They knew it would work. They did. They had a close relationship with him. Not just their brother was loved by Jesus, Jesus also loved them. They were like the insiders to the insiders. Knowing that Jesus was coming They could rest in that a little bit. And so they continued to care for their brother as best they could because hope was on the horizon. 
But over the next couple of days, varying degrees of fear would creep in. Where is he? Where do we fit in his life? Why hasn't he shown up yet? Doesn't he know what could happen? Mary and Martha both expect, expected that Jesus would swoop in, kiss the babies, high-five the others in the room, and give that knowing look to them saying, I got this, ladies. Hey, give me some credit. That was a good Jesus impression. <laughs> Two steps later, he would cast out all illness from their brother, and things would go back to normal. All healthy, all loving, all fully living. But expectations and reality don't always match up. I've said that to my kids before. You've probably heard it as well. Expectations and reality don't always match up. Jesus did not show up to heal him. They expected it. But their brother died because Jesus did not show up. So wrapped in the emotion of their Savior not coming to heal their brother, wrapped in the death of their brother, they had to now wrap his body in the burial shrouds. And quickly, embalming didn't happen. And in the climate of the Middle East, dead bodies decomposed quickly. On the same day as death, loved ones could be put into their tomb. Once the body was in the tomb, Mary and Martha were able to continue their mourning. Days went by, with neighbors and others coming, expressing condolences, embracing them, doing their best to be there with them in that moment. Sometimes an insensitive comment would be made. They did their best to continue to welcome. They did their best to mourn. But, but all these people showing up, they weren't Jesus. They weren't the one that was supposed to have come days ago and heal their brother. So four days after having buried their brother, Martha heard that Jesus was on the edge of town. With a bit of hustle, she grabbed all of her things. She left the mourners behind, and she goes to meet him. Solo, no sister in tow, no entourage. She wants this moment with Jesus. She wants to see his face when she delivers the words she's been planning. And finally, face to face, she delivers the line with the perfect tone of annoyance at the injustice she has experienced. Where have you been? If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then unplanned, she continues talking. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She says more than she knows, and certainly more than she has believed. How would you respond to that question, where have you been? Many of us would try and think of a solid excuse. I do when I hear it. Jesus doesn't give any story, no story at all. He responds simply, your brother will rise. Sharp and intelligent, Martha goes to what she has learned, what's in her head. I know he will in the last days at the resurrection. Jesus responds with a challenge. 
I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Martha, do you believe this? Again, her brain processes the riddle, gives the right answer. She again says more than she knows and more than she believes. You are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into this world. Not able to contain it anymore, Martha sends word to Mary that Jesus is here. And Mary, with great haste, comes running out to see him. The other mourners that she was with weren't as quick as her, but they followed, thinking she was going to the tomb. Siblings often share some characteristics and behaviors, but Mary didn't greet Jesus with a scolding about injustice. She falls at his feet, weeping uncontrollably until she gathers just enough composure to get it out. Where have you been? Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. The same words. Shaken, moved, troubled, Jesus' only verbal response is, where have you put his body? Come and see, they say. So the entire entourage starts to move towards the tomb. Still impacted by it all, tears welling up, Jesus silently cries. A tear every couple steps as he reflects on all that has happened. A loved one, dead and in a tomb. One sister that he also loves with all the answers, but they haven't hit her heart. The other sister, an amazing heart, but without any hope. And the others with them, they don't get it. Really, none of them do. When will they understand? Tears. They all get to the tomb, and Jesus tells them to remove the stone covering the entrance, and Martha switches mode. She quickly does some counting. One, two, three, eight. Jesus, my brother has been dead for four days. The smell is going to be too much. His body has already started to decompose. The stone was still removed, and with the smell of death greeting everyone, Jesus raised his eyes and prayed out loud, Father, I thank you that you, hear, that you heard me. I know you always hear me, but because of this crowd standing here, I say this so that they may believe you sent me. Taking a final deep breath, taking in that stench of death, he breathes out life. He commands life. Lazarus, come out. And still wrapped in the shrouds, Lazarus, the dead man, obeys. Comes back to life. Amen. Can you imagine the crowd? What, they, what might they be saying at this moment? Every person is a little different in what they connect with in moments like this in story, and some would focus on Jesus. I thought he could only heal. He raises the dead. Some would want to examine Lazarus. He was dead. He was in a tomb for four days. Now he's moving, he walk, he's walking, and he still smells like death. What is this? 
And some would focus on Mary and Martha, how their deep mourning would turn to joy. Remember, they're a team to be reckoned with. They're a sharp crowd. I bet there was a point in all the celebration, in all the joy, that some level of mystique arose. As they looked at their brother Lazarus, as they gave testimony to his death and time in the tomb, I like to think that one of them finally said, you were in the tomb for four days. You were dead. Where did you go? Where have you been? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your scripture. I thank you that you have given it to us and we are able to see the work of Christ and how it impacted people's lives and we can learn from it. Lord, I ask that you speak through me today. I ask that you speak to the hearts of of every person here. If there is just one word that might change their heart forever, would you speak through me in that time? In name I pray, amen. Not long after Lazarus was raised from the dead, a decision was made by religious leaders to kill Lazarus. Our scriptures don't tell us what actually happened with Lazarus. Crazy to think that he was raised from the dead, and then death became a threat. Not sure if a threat of death has much impact on a man raised from the dead. But we'll never know. We are currently in our series, Below the Surface, where we're working through one of the Apostle Paul's writings, 2 Corinthians. Our ushers, our ushers, there we go, our ushers are more than happy to get a Bible to you if you forgot yours, if your smartphone is dead, or if you don't have one. They're walking the aisles right now, you gotta just raise your hand. I have found that I, in my crazy, like to use my Bible app on my phone and the physical Bible, so you often see me raising my hand. Whatever your crazy is, they can get one to you. Uh, My name is Nicholas Todd. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Um, My my official title is Minister of Mobilization. And uh, this is a a great thing that Tony allows us through to to share this time of of bringing the word. Let me encourage you to write down any references you might hear today. Use the back of your bulletin. I talked about the taco earlier. Same place, right next to the taco. It's a great way to return to the sermon throughout the week and track with what was said. Today we have primarily been in John 11, but we've had great support from parts of Matthew 27, Luke 10, Acts 5 through 9, and Romans 12, and that's just to name a few. What's funny about this list is our series is about 2 Corinthians. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians, page 805 in the Bible that was just passed out. It's the first of the eons in the New Testament. We have our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We hit Acts and then Romans, and then all the eons begin. Corinthians is the first, and we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, page 805. I still hear pages turning, which answers the question, are you with me? Page 805. Follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. 
For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fastened us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The end of 2 Corinthians 4 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10, which we just read, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 are some of the common sections of Scripture used in funerals. If you think about the appropriateness of those times, it isn't exactly a time to break things down verse by verse. Sections of text are even skipped sometimes. As I read through 5, 1 through 10 and prepared to preach this morning, I decided to break it into two sections. The first is 1 to 5, and that's about our expectations. The second is 6 to 10, which is about courage and reward. Let's start by looking at expectations. 5, 1 through 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Paul sets the foundation for life and ministry. Verse 1, this tent is your earthly home. Verse 2, in this tent. Verse 4, in this tent. Sounds like a tent salesman. Now, he isn't pushing any sort of upscale real estate on what we are. Now, he does in 1 Corinthians write that our body is a temple. But the context in 1 Corinthians is about the cleanliness and purity of the body, not what the body is made of. I wonder if some in the Corinthian church, after receiving truth about purity in the body, really only heard that they were a temple, a building, a castle, a fortress. So as people get all dreamy-eyed about what they are, Paul decides to kill the romanticism of being a temple. Valentine's was last week. Some people take cues from biblical characters, one of such as Solomon, Song of Solomon, in their Valentine's writings, which I would say, that's a good idea, kudos, good on you. I don't, though. Something about writing thy temples are like pomegranates between thy locks. (laughs) Or... Thy hair is as a flock of goats. <laughs> to me, it screams, hey, baby, you got food in your hair. <laughs> or, you look like a goat. 
Did anybody take a note from Paul and write a note to their special someone this week saying, hey, baby, you are one righteous tent. (laughs) It might be true and biblical and bonus points for you, but it isn't increasing the romance. It kills the romance. It kills it because tents are temporary. As tents, we're going to face some pretty harsh weather. We're, We're going to get beaten down. Absolutely. And there's going to be some flooding. You're going to sweat. And there's going to be some uncomfort. But we have to live in this temporary state as tents. Life can be hard and really complex. Living well, living fully in those moments is a huge challenge. But if we come to a conclusion that is here in 2 Corinthians 5, I think it will help. And here comes the cheese. This Christian life is intense. You guys will catch up. Thank you. But here's the deal. It doesn't just continue with intensity. Intensity isn't forever. It actually ends with intensity as well. Verse 1, for we know that if this earthly tent we live in is what? For we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed. Talk about expectations right there. We don't just get some holes along the way, get a couple leaks. The tent is destroyed. Talk about setting our expectations right. And what do we do in the meantime? As we recognize what we are. Verse 2. In this tent we groan. Verse 4, while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. As the tent becomes tattered, as you begin to see through the walls of the tent, as the supports begin to break, you feel it. We have physical and emotional limits. We're all still human. But as a Christian, our groaning is about hope longing for that blessed help. What do we hope for? This last week, I physically groaned because um, of pain in my left hip. It's an ongoing malady that started about three and a half years ago. I emotionally groaned because another school shooting occurred in Florida. We hit our physical and emotional limits, and my groaning is because I hope for something better, for me, but for everybody. Verse 5, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. This is an important part. The Spirit is just a deposit. Full payment of blessing is still to come. It has not come, it is still to come, and there's more in the future. Now that our expectations are set on, on who we are and what we are and, and what our body is and what we can do with emotionally, let's look at the future. Courage and reward. We're in verses six to ten. 
Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Our bodies are tense. They're going to fall apart. We'll groan for what we know. The spirit is a partial payment for what is to come. Because of these things, we know that as long as we are here in this body, we are not with the Lord. But we move forward in confidence, knowing that what is to come will be at the resurrection. Martha referenced this to Jesus. When she said, uh, here, Martha referenced this to Jesus when she thought that Jesus could only heal Lazarus and not raise him from the dead. I know he will in the last days at the resurrection. But Jesus responded with a challenge. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That was from Jesus to her. So from me to you, do you? Are you able to live for Christ now in the tent you've been given? Verse 9, we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad. Whether we are here in this body or no longer in this body, it's worship. We recognize the glory of Christ. We name what Christ has done for us. We name what Christ has done in us. And we name what Christ has done through us. And we know what will be in the end. We got the end right here. We know what's on this test. We sit before Christ. We'll report and hear about the things we did well, in this temporary vessel. I like this. It's what we are owed. I like that. And I do look forward to that day. There are consequences for everything. Consequences has such a negative connotation. Um, how about harvest? It starts by planting something. We spend our time planting all different seeds all over the place. For myself, I think, what have I planted in the minds of the people around me? Because something will grow. But that something planted and that something harvested isn't always a result of worship. Often it's a result of my own selfishness. And our harvest will be known in the end. Reading through this text, there was one thing I thought it didn't cover for me. I mean, it does a great job talking about my tent a tent that I will beat up, that I will abuse, and it will break down as I pursue what the Lord has, has for me here on this earth. But it doesn't, for me, address my family. 2 Corinthians 5, 1, 2, 10 says that we are all tents, but I don't want my wife to be a tent. 
I don't want my two elementary school boys to be a tent because it means they're fragile or temporary, and I don't get to keep them. I can't handle that. A number of years ago when, I was, uh, when, when my family was living in China, I finished working out, you know, lifting weights. You can see I'm ripped. <laughs> and then I got on my motorcycle. Wow, look at that motorcycle, and I work out. Man, what a gift I am to y'all, right? <laughs> Truth be told, I did actually leave a gym. Um, and I jumped on the motorcycle. I had spent the last hour listening to scripture. And something had stuck with me. What would I give up for Christ? It was really easy at first. I made a list of everything I had already given up. Hey, look at me. Look what I did in the past. Look at that. It was pretty easy to sound righteous. But even before leaving the parking lot, pulling into traffic, I said out loud to God, don't you dare. Don't ask for my family. You can take me, but don't touch them. It was a short ride. I found my composure. I got home. No one was the wiser. Now, a family can be an idol. A common way to think about family being an idol is where the highest priority is your family. Family above all else. I don't like thinking about it in priorities because of the structure it creates. I mean, I create priorities in the office. I create priorities when I work. These things have to be accomplished in, these, in this order. But creating something like what's on the screen doesn't feel right for me. I do absolutely understand it. And in this moment, there's kind of a risk in talking about it because I, that I struggle with it. But, but it's, it's just a standard structure. I think I've heard about it for decades. Christ is the most important, then my wife, then my kids, then my job, and then maybe extended family, school, etc. We can keep going. We all have different valuable things. I don't even think my dog would make the list. It's kind of mean to my dog. He just wants me to love him. Um, I just hate dog hair. I digress. What I have done better with, as I have thought about it, is, is the next model. This is what came to me some time later, where Christ is central to all that I am, to all that we are, to all that we do. The two models aren't in conflict with each other. But when I look at this one, I'm allowed to hurt. So if one of these is taken from me, where is Christ? Christ is still central. But I'm allowed to feel. I'm allowed to call it injustice in that moment. I get to say, where have you been? But what's great about it is I already know the answer. He's still central. This allows me to live. God never asked to take one of my family members. But God did tell us to leave our jobs, to leave our community, to leave our home, the language we spoke, 
where memories had been developed and move. God's done that twice. Paul, the author of these texts, writes about the suffering of life and places Jesus at the center of it to give it substance and meaning. That's truth. And we have to live truth. As we look at the story of Lazarus, as we look at at this text here, the truth is Christ changed death forever. Death was transformed into life. I believe it. At my core, I believe it. But I wrestle with it. You see, I am Martha. I know the right answers, but I'm not fully comprehending all that the Lord can do. I'm Mary. My hope is limited. Christ is my most but not my everything. I haven't realized that death has changed. In our services, we often give a time of reflection, and every person here has something to respond to because, pinch yourself, you're still in your tent. When I go deep into my own tomb, the voice voice of Christ can seem distant but I am compelled to respond. How do you respond? Is Christ calling your name? Is Christ calling your name maybe for the first time and you're just starting to hear it? Is Christ calling your name, whispering just so that only you can hear it, saying, you've given me most, but not everything? Here's the challenge. Can you name the things you won't release? Can you name the things that prevent you from walking out of the tomb and into the arms of Christ? Which begs the next question. What is he calling you away from? And what's he calling you to? Church, the Christian life is intense. It isn't the most comfortable. There is great joy and there's great tears and there's a level of mystery to it all but we must move in the direction of the voice of Jesus. He can handle the tears. He's already shed them for us. Pray with me. Jesus, would you release us from our fears of living in these tents? May we be always dying, but never lifeless. Amen. Go in peace.